This is Tech Refactored. I'm your host, Gus Hurwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. Ash Eliza Smith is a speculative artist, designer, and researcher who creates stories for film, stage, and immersive play. She is also a professor at the Johnny Carson Center for Emerging Media Arts at the University of Nebraska. This past fall, she launched an initiative called Flyover Fictions, in which she pairs designers, architects, and artists with scientists and engineers to develop short visual digital books that speculate about the nature of their work. This is the third of our three discussions that we're having with some of the artists, scientists, and engineers who have been involved in this project. You can learn more about Flyover Fictions and the Flyover Summit at www.flyoverfictions.com fictions. I'm Kyle Langvard, and I'm filling in for Gus Hurwitz for this portion of the show. I'm going to be talking to Yasmin Sherry and Joshua Hur about their collaboration as part of the Flyover Fictions project. Yasmin Sherry is designer and director investigating the creative inquiry of technology and biology. Her research explores interfaces of sensing, perception, and aesthetics of simulation. She is an advocate for diversity in technology and builds platforms and tools that support artistic practice in life sciences. Joshua Herr is a biologist with broad interdisciplinary interests, focused mainly on the genomics and metagenomics of microbial interactions. His main interests center around understanding the symbiosis of mycorrhizal plant interactions, and I'm, I'm sorry about my you know, pronunciation of that word, but he follows interesting research questions wherever they may exist. And, and Josh, by the way, how do I pronounce that, that word? That association is called mycorrhizal. Mycorrhizal. So, yeah, and if we break breaking that word down into word roots, mycor is fungus, uh, rhizal is root. So it's just how fungi interact with plant roots. And that's a, one of my major research interests. All right. Well, Yasmin and, and Josh, I want to just start this out by asking what this flyover fictions project is is all about and i have to admit i'm i'm new to this concept so uh, what is this flyover fictions project generally the flyover fictions is there's multiple multiple parts of the project but the part that yasmin and i are involved in is the pairing of artists and designers with scientists and part of the flyover aspect of this project is to focus on the flyover parts of the country. So where I'm located in Nebraska is is a part of the country where a lot of people, maybe on the coasts where a lot of the activity is, just don't think so much about what happens. Mm -hmm. But in, in rural parts of the country, uh, they're really parts of the country that are producing and supporting urban areas. And so this project is hoping to bring awareness through the merging of science and design to these areas, maybe that aren't appreciated. So Yasmin and I have an interest in extreme environments, such as the desert of Southwest California, uh, near where Yasmin is. And so these are areas that, that are not necessarily appreciated by people in urban areas, but they're important for biological diversity, diversity of, of life and other aspects. So Yasmin, do you have anything to, to add to our experience with flyover fiction? Yeah. I mean, Josh said it perfectly. It's a kind of 
matching of scientists and creative folks to deep dive into a particular topic. In this particular matching, our topic is we're both not only passionate about extreme life, but we're also interested in microbes and the more biological side. So <clears throat> that's how the project started. And it was extremely exciting for both of us to kind of get to know each other. And now, so I, I guess I understand the the flyover aspect of this, but it sounds like if you're raising a, a, awareness, maybe it would be flyover facts. I mean, what, where's the fiction uh, part of this come in? I'll, I guess I'll mention that some of the some of our so that the end uh, goal of a, our project is perhaps to be a little speculative about the future mm-hmm. and the merging of the the facts of science and the the fiction or the speculative you know nature of of what we would produce is something that is inherent to the project. So we're like some of the other projects are looking at future agriculture. We're looking at what could be uh, happening to extreme environments under climate change, or what might we expect to find on an alien planet with regard to life? Can we understand what's happening on this planet already and make um, kind of assumptions or understand what life uh, could be like in a future sense? And that, that you know, involves a lot of speculation. And so that's actually a lot where uh, Yasmin comes in because you know, she's designing new ways of communicating this diversity that we see in biology, especially with regard to microbes. Yeah, I mean, I find it really interesting, this like big stark division between fiction and fact, Mm -hmm. which I don't actually agree with, (laughs) but which is the fun part of talking to a scientist and talking to different folks, because I think there are different angles for how humans and disciplines come into looking at what exists today versus what has existed and what will exist. For me, particularly, I find it fascinating to look at the invisible things that are around us. So the Mm. microbes, for example, you could say that they don't exist, for example. But that's the exciting part of really looking at things that are right in front of us that we could shine more light on and to kind of look at our current situation with the earth and the climate and to kind of begin to look at these notion of fact or fiction or speculation. Um, one of my favorite authors, Ursula Le Guin, also talks about speculation in this very particular way that's looking at today, actually, is the way that she tries to write about her work. And so for me, part of this work part of the project is to work with Josh to have conversations and dialogues to kind of understand how might we imagine or what are ways that we can reveal Mm -hmm. realities that we might not see so directly or that cultural angles have shaped. So that's, that's kind of also part of the fiction and the, and the mythology, let's say of, of this kind of, space that we're looking at. So that that's the part where I see like speculation and fiction and fact coming together. Yeah, I mean, I, I the perception point is is really interesting. I mean, a, anything beyond the the threshold of perception is something that you have to encounter to some degree through well, I, I mean entirely through imagination. E- even if we we uh recognize these in, invisible aspects of nature as parts of of reality. It, it, it's a different kind of encounter with reality from, from things that we can directly perceive. 
I was going to mention that uh, one of the things that's really interesting about perception is it wasn't even just a few hundred years ago, we didn't fully understand that there were microorganisms, you know, bacteria and fungi and and what are called archaea. So all of these organisms, we we didn't understood understand that they even existed. We had some evidence about them, but it wasn't until the invention of the microscope mm-hmm. and our ability to use lenses and optics to then be able to see things that were really small. And once those were discovered, that opened up a whole area of of life. So is, before that, it was all speculation. And we, we're probably sitting at a, a time period where we could speculate on what we have not observed yet. I mean, mm-hmm. these are all things that, that we have with technology advancing such that we might be able to observe something that we uh, don't know exists, but we could speculate that it exists based on some uh, evidence that we have. What do you think about that, Yasmin? You, you've been thinking a lot about these things. so Yeah. One of the things that we started actually with the project was Josh and I both were very drawn to deserts. And part of this is because I live in California and I've been to lots of California deserts, but also kind of thinking about Death Valley, this mm-hmm. space that is named after death, which is very <laughs> much part of life. And it's, you know, in many times of, in many times throughout history, it's been the hottest part of earth. And so we were really interested in that because we wanted to explore what does limit of life mean and are there living things in these kinds of spaces from a microbial perspective and so this kind of liminality this border of what is life is really interesting in my own work given that I work a lot with um, kind of different technologies as well and how we begin to give animation or anim 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 I guess to to things that might not be real and might not be having life. So this this philosophical question is really interesting to me. And talking to Josh, it was very clear that we want to focus on deserts. And so we began to talk about the connection between, you know, soil and earth's borders mm-hmm. and how this feels like kind of the skin of the earth. And it has so much it it has so much of life and history and memory embedded in it. And talking to Josh, it's it's obviously invisible, but we can kind of go to, to his point about microscopes and these kind of gadgets and let's say instrumentation, we can begin to perceive it from a human perspective, which also began made us think about what is the human perspective because mm-hmm. so much of the so much of the project is centered around extreme life. And so Josh and I were talking about this notion of what is extreme and to who is it extreme. And so these microbes are very much, you know, called extremophiles, um, meaning extreme loving and can exist in extreme spaces. But yeah, extreme to humans, obviously. So some people call that anthropocentric for us to look at it that way. So we began this debate about what is it and what is it not. Could you talk a little bit about these these kind of boundaries between things we we attribute life to and and things that that we don't could you could you give me some some examples of the, the kinds of phenomena you encounter at that boundary are you uh curious about the boundary of what is what is life and what is not living so like this is an interesting <laughs> question about what is what is alive and what is not alive especially in these extreme environments where yeah organisms have to persist for a long time without maybe any water or with you know without any food or other mm-hmm. things well so is it- i mean i i 
don't encounter this with any kind of expertise in, in biology at, at all. I mean, I, I'm aware that we talk about like extremophiles, so a creature that can live in an extremely hot environment. But it seems to me like maybe there's a different a different axis that you're you're getting at here, which is maybe a a, a creature or or an entity that's way out on the boundary between what we consider uh, living and, and what we consider inanimate altogether, which, which strikes me as a different type of question from, can this creature live in a in a difficult environment? I guess that's more what I'm getting at. Yeah. And I feel like that was definitely one thing that we came across. But one of the early questions we actually had was, what are these organisms that can exist in these mm-hmm. extreme, quote unquote, extreme environments? And with Josh and, and Josh, feel free to mention them, what they are, because we looked at salt loving, we looked at heat loving, we looked at cold loving, like extreme cold. And turns out in Antarctica, for example, there's, a, you know, it's kind of a desert too, but in a very different way, right? Yeah, and, and we built a library, like an archive, um, at least this growing library of different kinds of extreme, quote unquote, extreme <laughs> microbes and different kinds of organisms. And Josh, the way I understood it was that they were like invisible microbes, but I feel like there's so much depth to what kind of different different sizes, different categories, categories these um, living organisms have. Yeah, some some of things that we consider microbes are in this situation where when they grow in groups, you can actually see them. So lichens are a great example of, of if you're aware of these, they're like these uh, crusty organisms yeah. that grow on trees or the soil or in the desert. And they can survive long periods of time without water. And they just need a little bit of sunlight and maybe get some nutrients from rainwater. But they can persist for, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years on barely any anything. So these are examples of, of extremophiles that you can see that are based on microbes that are aggregates of um, of microbes that you can't see. So Yeah. And Kyle, to come back to your question about like definitions and what is living and what is not, that actually also became part of our project because the definitions around what is nature, what yeah. is um, visible, what is existing is also something that it's not contested, but something we want to shine light on with this Mm -hmm. project. And so part of the work was um, thinking about language and about, I guess, cultural perceptions of Mm -hmm. living things. Because, you know, we talked about germs, we talk about viruses, we, we did this project during the COVID pandemic. So there's a lot of, you know, thought about what is nature what is biology what is a microbe yeah um and so we wanted to change that a little bit and and begin to kind of shine light on languages and so and i can i I'll, i will keep rambling if i yeah. if you no, allow me so. i'm thinking about language and you have a, a couple of uh titles that you, you've given to different parts of your work desert skin and microbial myths i mean Maybe let's talk about microbial myths because I, I think we've been talking about uh, about microbes a little bit here. I mean, what are the the myths? 
Yeah, so actually it's called microbial glyphs. Um, oh, glyphs. But, but, the, okay. but the myth itself is actually really interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't think about that, but you're making <laughs> me think about exciting things maybe we should write about. But the glyph part comes out of language, out of typefaces, and the kind of iconography and um, sim- what I call biosemiotics, mm-hmm. which is kind of like the iconography we give to nature or the right. kind of aesthetic language that we give to what is living or what is acceptable as good living and so mm-hmm. on. I would say our language, obviously our ang- language shapes the way we see the world and as much as our world shapes the way we communicate. So our verbal and written language is a part of that. And I know that in many different cultures, they have words for, for instance, different kinds of snow or different kinds mm-hmm. of um, smell and things that are potentially not visible to other cultures because they didn't give form and, and shape to it and language to it. So we wanted to do that. And we wanted to do this through symbols and semiotics and I was really excited about kind of building a typeface that is actually a microbial typeface. So we called it microbial glyphs. Yeah, that's where (laughs) it comes from. Okay. And, uh, and, and so then how about the, the desert, desert skin? I remember in our early conversations, we were talking about soil and how we can kind of see the history of the different microbes through that. And we were talking about skin of the earth Mm -hmm. and, the history is there, but I'll let you <clears throat> deep dive on that. Well, you know, the idea of soil, um, because it's the basis of, of life, you know, our plants that are uh, growing in the soil all globally are getting their nutrients and their water from the soil, and they're producing food for us, food for animals. And that's basically the basis of life. So soils globally form the basis of life. And even in places like uh, Death Valley, where you wouldn't think that life could be supported. There's an amazing diversity of life in these soils that, you know, is maybe persisting for years and years, waiting for that one day where there's the monsoon mm-hmm. rains, you know? We think of, and, and you know, skin is something that I think it's easy for all of us to um, to kind of recognize because we all have, we have skin. We know what it's like. Yeah. We know what it, what, it, what it is. And so thinking about the earth's skin, the desert skin in this sense, is, you know, a covering or protectant, the basis of, of where life is. And so that was just basically our interest with that. Yeah. And I would also say, so to that point, we also, to, to Josh's point about how, you know, we thought there's no life, but there's all this incredible mm-hmm. biodiversity in the space. We have this notion that nature is green, nature is rolling hills, but nature is so many things. And there is almost like a human perception that's not yeah. in touch with reality of, of living things. Yeah. Well, and, and a skin is a surface. Yeah, uh, exactly. Too. Exactly. So yeah, you, you could say that what, what we encounter is the, the desert and, and what's, what's barren. Um, you know, that, that's just kind of what, what, what comes to the eye perceive. immediately. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, that, I mean, it's a really, really evocative. And, and so how these connect is, uh, you know, we have the, this um, kind of new, new diversity that we're learning in extreme places, especially, but in general, all, you know, globally, we're still learning about the biological diversity that's out there. And then with the microbial glyphs, uh, this is kind of a new language that Yasmin is, is uh, writing, creating in a way that could be used to communicate this diversity in a new in a new language. Yeah, and I would go on and say 
the the funny part is that in typefaces and in typesetting and in writing, you can see in emojis today, there's mm-hmm. so much like pictograms, there's so much part of our language. Obviously, imagery shapes the way we think in addition to our language. And I actually found in early typesetting a lot of uh, kind of horticultural glyphs Hmm. so kind of like leaves Mm -hmm. and flowers and things that essentially we associate with nature as decorations around let's say essays or books and so on and today you'll see one in your keyboard called the florent which is like a flower and you can also use it as a way to typeset so we wanted to change that because we wanted to also talk about nature not as decoration nature not as and these living Mm -hmm. things not as kind of uh and and also not just plants and flowers which are easy things that we can connote to nature and so to make it about microbes so we wanted to build a library to to kind of communicate the library in this kind of glyph iconographic format and when the typeface comes out and we're collaborating with a typeface designer when the typeface comes out, I, I highly recommend everyone to try it because we also built in gestural interactions and ways that the typeface can grow and morph and shape, shift. So this was kind of like using my own practice, design practice, working with Josh to kind of build this library to kind of put something into the world, <laughs> allow mm-hmm. people see what happens <laughs> into the wild, <laughs> into cultural wild yeah. and see what happens. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we're so used to, at least in in Western writing cultures, we're used to a basically arbitrary relationship between the appearance of written text and and at least the the meaning of the underlying underlying words. But it it sounds like here the the appearance of the glyphs has more kind of inherent semantic content. We're kind of, we started with the appearance actually, and then we got into behaviors. And then Mm -hmm. later we started talking about the DNA as language too. And so with Josh, we were talking about sequencing and also embedding the DNA, ACTG, inside the glyphs themselves. So when you download the typeface, you will also be able to download the (laughs) organism's DNA. And so we're just, we're just being playful with language. What is language and what is communication because it it so much shapes the way we perceive the world and we see yeah. the world so yeah that's also part of the desert skin and josh we've talked about going to the desert together and and doing some fun sequencing together and dis- discovering yeah and i i'll comment it's been brought up the dna sequencing so for those listeners uh, out there that maybe aren't aware of dna dna is stands for uh, deoxyribonucleic acid. And uh, you're probably all aware of it if you've ever watched any forensic shows on TV because they're always looking for it to identify a person. But every organism out there from the tiniest bacteria, viruses, humans, whales, trees, uh, we're all defined by this language of chemicals in the, the DNA chemical. And these the, the the words that are created by these four chemical bases, adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine, the A, G, C, and T, those basically spell out the the language in the books uh, of directions to how our lives are, are created. So everybody has their own script uh, written by the A's, G's, C's, and T's, and that creates the abilities that we have in a biological sense. 
So, <laughs> excuse me. So understanding uh, that language and coupling that with uh, Yasmin's uh, uh, language is was something that we got really excited about being able to take that biological language and put it with with the glyphs uh, and the typeface that is inspired by the microbes that we see. Yeah, it's really it, it's interesting, I guess, to think about DNA in the context of of this conversation and and what both of you have said about the role of language in, in shaping our perception of, of life that's that's not immediately visible. I mean, if if DNA is a, a kind of code that that actually builds uh, life, it, it doesn't just refer to life, but but constitutes life. Maybe you could say that our own human concepts play the same role in structuring our, our, our uh, imaginings about about what what we're encountering it's it's our own language that makes makes it possible for human beings to encounter invisible microbes at at any level at all i mean not not to mention i mean to encounter each other if you're going to see anything beyond beyond the skin of a person you have to use your own imagination uh to to create the person behind that skin yeah i mean so much of this is about code and creating code, like when you look at the DNA code, or when you look at a mathematical notation, or when you look at musical notation, um, I think it's interesting to think about microbes as a form of notation. And I, I think once you can kind of give code message kind of this aesthetic or shape and form to it, then we can begin to converse and have dialogue with one another about it. So it's not as invisible that it as it used to be. And I think this way that we were just playing around with DNA and typefaces and so on. I think there's this code switching that happens that along the way, we're learning these new things about how humans respond to that or how people get excited about it. And also historically, what used to exist around, for instance, horticultural dingbats and so on. So I, I personally think this will be an ongoing project, kind of series of projects with Josh and with others to kind of investigate this way that we perceive living things. And I also think it's uh, really uh, important and there's an urgency for that given the climate crisis. And, and to add to that, one of the things that's kind of fascinating is if we want to learn more about our climates, we could read, try to read the code of organisms that are in the environments that we want to learn more about. And so just decoding that genetic code so that we can change that to our own understanding is, is going to be a, a important question. It's an important question now, and it's going to be vital moving forward as we try to understand how our climate is changing and how we can listen to the voices of the microbes communicate to us what they're experiencing in that process. Well, so this is, I mean, this is just incredibly, you know, fascinating and, and thought provoking stuff. When you're done with the project, where can listeners access the, the final output? Yeah, so we are actually building a website and we will be sharing it with the world. I will send the link to everyone, <laughs> but then we will have both about the project, about the inform information within it, and also what Josh and I have been in the process making and what's coming up next, as well as the typeface. You're welcome to download it. I don't have the website yet, so I will <laughs> have okay. to send it to you. Sorry. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, this I'm, is... I'm going to be looking for it. The Flyover yeah. website should have it. 
Okay. For sure. Yeah. And this is a really an ongoing project that's been evolving with us. It's exciting to see where it's going to lead. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I would also say, uh, you know, I think Josh and I, to his point about ongoing project, we'll be exploring this theme further and both in our own practices too. I know, Josh, you're also looking at sequencing and looking at kind of um, different ways that microbes can inform us about life. Maybe you can talk about that. Or Sure. Moving forward, I mean, we're, we're uh, you know, what, what, what our plans are, uh, you know, once we have a website and the typeface that you'll be able to download, uh, we also want to incorporate kind of a visual aspect of, you know, visiting Death Valley, uh, kind of observing both uh, visually, but uh, taking samples of the, the desert's sand and soil, and then sequencing some of the microbes there to understand if we could kind of read their language. So that's yeah. that will be an ongoing project, but these um, sequencing projects take take a few years usually to uh, to uh, finish and complete. So that'll be something that we'll work on for for a while. But it'll be exciting to kind of tie together the language that Yasmin is designing with the language of understanding the microbes. Um, so we hope to hope to do that. Um, yeah, and one of our goals is to essentially get kids and general public excited about mm-hmm. these topics. I think that's really important. And the more Josh and I can like talk back and forth and try to find vocabulary and imagery and yeah, push the project in a place where other folks can get involved. That's kind of the goal. I'm really looking forward to follow following the, the project and, and your future work. And I mean, it just seems like there are, are so many different directions you could you could take this. Well, thanks, Kyle. It was really lovely. Yes, thank you, Kyle. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, I'm your host, Kyle Langvard. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Tech Refactored. If you want to learn more about what we're doing here at NGTC or submit an idea for a future episode, you can go to our website at ngtc.unl.edu or you can follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore NGTC. And if you enjoyed the show... Don't forget to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Our show is produced by Elspeth Magilton and Lysandra Marquez, and Colin McCarthy created and recorded our theme music. This podcast is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series. And until next time, keep it mycorrhizal. <laughs>